0: One of the lenses I want to suggest would be to consider the gospel through the lens of initiation. We feel responsible to have a kind of 30-minute conversation that ends with the sitcom making sense. Uh, no. Sometimes the vision can cause you to stop. The vision doesn't drive you, the vision can actually constrain you. You just think, well, gosh, that's way bigger than I am. That's way bigger than my skills. If your spiritual life does not have a regular dose of adventure to it, it's not going to sustain the masculine soul.
1: Oh, dude. I am so freaked out today. I don't even know where to start. (laughs)
0: Are you, like,
1: tinfoil hat freaked out? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Something. Like, scary tiger freaked out? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like. I don't know, Red Dawn, go make a cabin in the woods to avoid the Soviets, freaked out. Oh, my favorite kind. Go Wolverines. Patrick Swayze, man. What a dancer. Anyway, so I was reading this book a couple weeks ago. Nicholas Carr, nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. It's called The Shallows, uh, and it's kind of a neurobiological look at what the internet. So not a shark movie. No, not a shark movie. There is a shark movie called The Shallows. This is the book about what the internet does to the human brain. I would be very scared to read that. Yeah, okay, so just think about what you think the Internet does to the brain. Make it worse. (laughs) And then that's what the Internet does to the brain. Like, to put it in a sentence, the Internet is effectively dismantling all of the positive things that we have attributed to human beings and to human flourishing. Like so love, the love, community, the, the ability to feel compassion, faith, the ability to differentiate between meaningful alternatives, creativity, anyway, all those things. So, I'm just trying to myself to slow down here, man. I was reading this and I was like, "Why is this allowed?" Actually, like this becomes a real question of, man, this crazy thing exists, and we're sort of letting it infiltrate every part of our lives. Why is this happening? And then the second book came along. A number of years ago, we bumped into this book, along with, evidently, several million readers in the United <laughs> States. It helped us find it. Shop Class as Soulcraft was given to Sam on the eve of his wedding. And if you haven't read that, finish this podcast, and then... Get on your library website and become the 40th person in the hold line for that book, or just buy one. Matthew B. Crawford is a political philosopher, PhD, one-time leader of a think tank, current research fellow, actually, who— So a fairly intelligent guy. Smart dog who left his job at a think tank to start a motorcycle repair shop, and he wrote this book on sort of why he did that, what it is about engaging real things and working in a shop that is actually more satisfying to a human being and to a human mind than this sort of abstracted work that people have accustomed themselves to.
0: And this isn't any like religious teacher who's trying to claim that it's man's great purpose to toil. This is a secular think this tank guy. This is just a
1: philosopher guy. Motorcycle guy. Yeah. Anyway, he Super wrote a book. great book. He wrote a book several years later. It came out a couple of years ago called The World Beyond Your Head on Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction. And I actually got it because I really want Matthew Crawford to hang out with me. Uh, But it has proved difficult to contact him, uh, pretty much fundamentally impossible. In the outside chance you're a listener, email us. Um,
0: (laughs) Matty, Matt. (laughs) <laughs> Manny Matt, thanks for listening. Thank you for your book. Give us a Drop us a line. We don't have any contact info anywhere, so good luck with that.
1: Yeah, and you're partially responsible for that. So what this book did is it, it provided an answer to my earlier question based on reading about the way that technology affects the human brain. Why is this just sort of happening in everybody's school with it? And what Crawford points out is that in order to answer that, you have to look at the formation of the self in the West. Like, you have to think about this crazy bedrock issue of what we think a human being is and how we think a human mind works that has influenced everything, everything. So
0: my mind's going in several different directions, part philosophy, part East versus West ideas of personhood and community versus individual. And then part of me is going down like the Blade Runner, Deus Ex Machina, personhood self route. So
1: You (laughs) absolutely, the one that you should think about the most is Blade Runner. This is, this has most, most bearing on the way that you think about science fiction from now on, uh, because we have this issue if you've ever dabbled in philosophy, it's sort of the first, what, they, what is presented to you as the first one. There's no, it's not an accident, but the one that's presented as the first one is like, how does the mind engage the world? It's the whole, how do you know there's something out there? How do you know you know? I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. Okay. So just, just pause on this and go, it's not accidental and it is not necessary. Like, there's no reason that we start with those questions. They're not actually insurmountably foundational, but there is a reason because they've sort of formed the bedrock of our understanding of the world here in what's termed the Western part of the world. So if you're a little bit lost right now, don't worry. We're going to take this journey. It's going to make this super clear. Here's a question to start the conversation. What does a person have that counts as valuable?
0: Wow. What a loaded question, right? Well, so money's valuable. If you're just going to answer that from like the hip, what does a person have? Like their
1: assets. Yeah, they've got like
0: a card in their pocket. Right. What is value? What is intrinsically valuable about a human being? I think people would say that there just is their soul and all of the ethical dilemmas that kind of arise from. Whether or not you imagine all people are created fundamentally valuable and equal in in that respect. Yeah.
1: Those are good answers to a deep question. Let me just narrow it and make it a little shallower. It's been observed that we live in an information economy.
0: The information age.
1: The information age. And there are sort of arguments circulating that information of various kinds, quality of information, like that's knowledge work. All of those things are the things that produce value in an information economy.
0: Gotcha. So a set of skills or a set of expertise in an area can separate a person from flipping burgers to running a think tank.
1: Exactly. But when we describe an economy in terms of trying to allocate a limited resource, the information isn't actually a limited resource, right? So, like, we could produce 10 different podcasts besides the Anson's podcast, and in a very real way, they're not intrinsically valuable, even though I would say they are, until someone listens to it. Hmm. So if you write a really cool collection of poetry, you've just done a form of highly skilled artistic work And I would say, yes, art does not need justification. That's valuable in itself. But there's another dimension to it having to do with, like, your ability to pay for your next meal, which is that until someone is willing to give you attention, you haven't created a valuable object.
0: Right. So something only has value if other people give it value, whether that's attention or money.
1: Exactly. And because of that, what's really important to name about our world is that we actually live in an attention economy that the most limited resource a person has access to is actually their ability to look at a finite number of things. All of the major industries that currently exist in the world exist by directing people's attention to various things. And the more people's attention they can direct, the more valuable it is, right? Sure. Seeing what
0: I'm doing here? Kind of. I'm thinking about like a circus all of a sudden. Why are you
1: thinking of a circus?
0: Uh, Because I'm thinking of like, where did this come from? Like, why did an economy basically emerge around attention directing? And I'm thinking of like a day and age where the brightly colored circus tent and some announcer out front was a novelty and got people to go there and do things. And then maybe how it evolved to like, oh, if you can get people's attention, you can describe value to things.
1: Absolutely. And so it's been observed that in many, many ways, What most people are doing all the time, they're giving their attention. They're allowing it to be monetized in exchange for ease or certain services sort of across the board. So, you know, we need to have an email in order to put something on a resume. But, you know, if you notice that if you go into like the promotions box of your email, if you ever click on that one.
0: Actually, our magazine comes through that filter now.
1: Right? Well, because you have to for certain (laughs) things but if we wanted our magazine to be sticky we could pay google and they would put it at the top of the promotions thing for a certain number of time so you know you can buy this slot for people's attention you know and the same thing on any technology that people agree to allow to access them the interesting thing is is that it's not just the fact that you can monetize on people that makes attention valuable the thing that makes attention valuable is that quiet or the absence of stimulus is sort of the prerequisite for creative work. So the ability to give your attention over a long period of time to something is the foundation of how mastery happens. So it seems to be sort of intrinsically valuable. It's not just valuable because you tend to buy what you give your attention to, but it tends to be the thing that sort of is the creative capacity of a person.
0: Okay, there's a lot of things there, and I feel like I just kind of wandered into a rat's nest. I think I understood what you said, but essentially what you're saying is it's not just the ability to make a bigger, brighter sign and therefore sell your shoes better than your competition across the street, but that as human beings, the sort of the law of 10,000 hours of like, if you give your attention to golf or woodworking or writing for a long amount of time, you'll develop mastery for it. So it has not only value because you can buy and sell things, but because as human beings, we gain mastery through time. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Okay.
1: And attention is important because it allows us to reframe our initial question of why are people allowing this to happen? As I was just describing the sort of technization.
0: Right. Like if there's something that's really bad, that's like demonstrably hurting us, why do we keep it around?
1: Exactly. And so it becomes more urgent when you look at like, okay, the most scarce resource that we have is our attention, but we're allowing a kind of unrestricted competition for it and an unrestricted access to it. Why are we doing that? And here comes the moment when we begin our journey and we go back to the Enlightenment. So the Dark Ages happened. There were reasons, the Black Death, yada, yada, castles, feudalism, the rise of imperial China. Then this guy came along out of nowhere. No, we all know that there were like contributing historical exigencies, Uh, but Newton happened.
0: Yes, we all know that there are contributing historical exigencies.
1: eccentricity. (laughs) We all know these things. So part of the Enlightenment coincides with the beginning of the scientific revolution, Francis Bacon, those cats. The reason that we actually need to start with Newton is that Newton freaked everybody out. Newton came up and was like, hey guys, there are laws that govern motion. And everyone was like, oh, that's cool. Up till now, we've just had Kepler. But now we have you saying that an object in motion will stay in motion until something makes it stop. Sweet. Which is like literally everything. It's like the kind of thing that where like someone comes up to you and says something and then five minutes later, you freak out. I kind of like to think of various people. There's no evidence this event happened. But just picture like various thinkers around the world opening this letter at one time that sort of had Newton's discoveries in it. And they like read it and were like, oh, and then they left the room and all of a sudden you just see the letter just fall from their hand as they go, is there free will? And if there's not free will, how are we going to have countries?
0: Oh my gosh. Who are these people and why do they make jumps like that?
1: Uh, Because people right away started noticing, oh my goodness, if there are laws that govern motion... If basically you can trace the entire world through a measurable process of cause and effect, you go, there's no reason that that wouldn't apply to people too. Like that a person is tapped in a relational way and they extend that tap in a relational way that could be uh, measured or described by the same kind of discrete set of physical laws, right? So determinism comes in with Newton. And meanwhile. In another part of the Enlightenment, a little bit later, you have a little-known philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. He's making a joke. Little-known. Yeah, so you have Kant, you have, you know, the big dog, and one of the first things that he does is try to figure out how to preserve free will, which shows just how pressing this question was to philosophers during the Enlightenment was like, the letter falls from their hand, and then just picture it was Kant reading the letter, and he's sort of pacing around his town, going like, "Oh crap! Oh crap! Oh crap! Oh crap! Free will, free will, free will, free will, free will, free will. How do we do it?" And this is where he goes. He goes, "I got it. There is a mind, which exists apart from the body in very real ways. That exists behind experience, that receives data." And then processes them through established circuits, and then makes rational decisions. And the reason that matters is, is he located the mind outside of the material. So he was like, "Boom, Newton! Nothing can push this in a direction that's going to determine what it does next." Yeah, yeah, you picking up what I'm like? So we. I just- am. I'm
0: just having a hard time. I don't know. It's been so long since I took a philosophy class that so I don't know how I feel about the difference at this point. Like, yeah, way to go, Kant! You did it. And or if I should be like, Kant, you literally had the cause of Newton's paper, and the effect was for you to push against it. And then you were like, "There's a brain that can have this information and then think and make a decision."
1: How is that not cause and effect? Well, it's different to say that things relate causally than to say that things are constrained deterministically. That is; those are different words. <laughs> no, I think I understand what you mean. <laughs> but for our purposes here, like what I see is, oh my gosh, Kant, you've just ruined everything for a really long time. Hmm. And the reason is, is that what you have you have allowed a mind to exist apart from the body, and there is a crack in that worldview that is going to widen over time until it sort of implodes in our era. And here's why. Technically, a little bit before Kant, we can trace the relation of these two figures and their philosophies, but let me just promise you these things emerge together, so you need to have Kant in hand before you go back a little further and uh, look at this fellow John Locke. Why are we going to John Locke? Well, we're going to look at the way that the disembodied mind shaped Western civilization. I'm just going to create a thought experiment here. I'm just going to say you like walk up to a person in the store and you go, Hey, what's the most important part of democracy? If you gave them three things that every time one of the three things would be what I'm thinking of, I'm going to see if I can get you to give it to me. What is the most important part of democracy, Sam? Um, the balance of power. Number one, Sam evading Blaine's trap. Uh, what else? <laughs> Not even like the government, but that it's like,
0: and maybe I'm, I'm using that wrong because it's, it's people's voice versus a leadership voice.
1: Yeah. That's actually, that's actually what I wanted, but that's I, what would, I, mean by the balance. I would, I don't,
0: I don't mean like dude, executive and judicial and all that.
1: Yeah. So I would go. I would just put it in a word and just go freedom, that there are— America, that, freedom, democracy. Okay, so exactly. The, you just said the three things that our person in <laughs> uh, the store just said. Uh, but if you're John Locke, your concept of freedom is very much connected to, like, authority, as you just said, government. It's like, we don't want there to be the arbitrary exercise of authority over people. Right. Like uh, God. Would you just stop and let me just get there just one second? No. Okay. okay. So so this is what he does. He's like, okay, so we need freedom from that kind of authority. And then he goes, yep. Uh, the major problem with authority in Locke's day is how do you get it? Well, you make claims to a universal order, right? So like king's rule by divine right. Right. Blah, bitty, blah, bitty, blah, blah. But essentially, you make an appeal to the authority of God, and Locke's way out of that is actually really interesting because what he just goes is, he, is he's like, God is so far above all human conduct that it's silly to say that like the king is to the subject as God is to the king. Like the distances just are you know, in infinite between those two, and so he goes actually because of the authority of God all men are equal with one another. Like we're all individuals under God. Right. You're starting to hear some of the language of the American constitution or like the pledge of allegiance. But you know, what he goes is like, all people are under God. And then you have this problem, which is like, okay, so if all men are equal, how do they decide what to do? And he goes, well, everybody consents to be governed. They make a they make a choice to be governed. <laughs>
0: hey, this, uh, yes, you, I, I would like to be governed rather than killed by your armies, Sir King.
1: Exactly. You were just, you were just talking about, like, the kid who's just, like, been sent to the room. And they're like, I'm going because I want to. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, "What? Oh, you're going because you're avoiding a spanking. And that's the problem that, you know, philosophers like Charles Taylor point out with Locke. And they just go, um, yeah, let me just raise my hand in the back of the class. So when did that moment happen? Because... Where was there the pre-political humans who, like, came together and were like, let's have a country. This individual thing isn't working out.
0: Like, you know what I'm missing? Somebody ruling over me.
1: But, you know, how Locke kind of shifts his way around is he has this enlightenment category of the disembodied mind. So he's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're born with, like, all of the infrastructure in place, but we have this mind that analyzes it and isn't, isn't constrained by it, and then we make decisions about, like, whether or not we want to keep participating.
0: Yeah, I think most people would agree with that, if not in so many
1: words these days. I, you're absolutely right. And people sort of have to agree with it because it's baked into our democracy, this idea of, like, well, people have this mind that floats behind their experience... Through which they analyze what's going on and then they make decisions. But we've arrived at the moment of crisis, which is like, okay, so because of Enlightenment political philosophy that gets cooked into Western politics, we have preserved the idea that behind experience, there's this floating human being who's like taking in sense data, it's trickling through whatever apparatus it is that trickles through and makes rational judgments happen and then is making a decision about the world. Right? We're there? Yeah. Okay. Why so, is that
0: coming to a problem? Well, why
1: is that, like, why are we at now at crisis mode? Yeah. Um, because it turns out that is not anything like the way that people perceive the world. That's not anything like the way that people as individuals interact and make decisions. But if you let that happen, you let all kinds of crazy things happen because you throw back on the person the opportunity of choice all the time. Just to give one example, and then we're going to dive a little deeper is, if we say, hey, behind experience is a rational individual, well, then the market for attention is just totally okay. Because it's like, well, we make Facebook accessible to everybody, but people have a mind that sort of interacts with it at a distance, not being touched by it, comes to a conclusion about how that person is going to use it, and then makes a decision about it. So if you happen uh, to be entangled and in its infrastructure, that's your fault. Mm. Right? Okay if you can hear echoes of this sort of across the sphere, the fascinating thing of, I hear a critic in me wanting to be like, oh, but doesn't this like attack responsibility? I'm like, well, kind of. It changes the thing responsibility is in a big way, which we will get to very quickly. Uh, But it is safe to say that our sort of floating notion of responsibility is grossly inaccurate. Uh, In order to talk about why, we need to pivot. We need to leave our world. <laughs> we are getting too easy to understand there. We got to go deeper. We're going to go deeper. And we're going to talk about um, how it is that we actually perceive. How it is that people see things. Okay. Okay, so. Uh, With my eyeballs. Yeah, so you tell me. You tell me, But be an Enlightenment person. I want you to be Immanuel Kant, and I want you to explain how you see my face. Um, (laughs) no, this, so if
0: I'm Kant, then I see your face with my eyeballs because everybody sees with their eyeballs. And then I have specific reactions to your face because of who you are. I have familial ties. And so I feel a sense of like connection, protection, defend the clan. And I also respond to the emotion on your face, depending on
1: what it's it, showing me. That's perfect. The synapse, the pause, the kaishura that I want to call attention to is when. Isn't that what they fight in Pacific Rim? Uh, I think that's the kaiju. Oh, okay. Uh, a ka- the kaishura? Well, a kaishura, as it should be pronounced, but it's sometimes a seishura is a pause. Uh, uh, in a poem, usually. But. In this case, it's you saying, my eyeballs see you, and then I. It's the, and then I. It's the, mm-hmm, yeah. like, so I look at you, and then s- by some mysterious process, like my brain slash mind floating behind the brain, sort of, like, builds a set of associations of, like, there's Sam, and and this is what he would look like if I walked around his side. And, they're, like, I can... If
0: I, like, do a, like... If I sit here for ten minutes and want to you know, journal about it, I might get there. But doesn't doesn't Malcolm Gladwell have a book about like you actually make all of these decisions immediately
1: without really even thinking about it? In fact, he does. His is about the formation of of judgments and yeah. how they happen. Uh, this is before judgments. This is literally. Let's we're just talking about the raw act of seeing here, mm. just bare bones. And the view has been because of this enlightenment view. Like, um, light enters my eyes. Light reflecting off your face enters my eyes, and then my brain builds a picture. Right. Right. That's listener. Can you corroborate me? Yeah, that's like not. It's not at all how you see. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is fascinating. How do I see then? You actually. We have learned. That uh, people, I haven't learned. We have learned that <laughs> that people see by being embodied, and that actually I have no idea what that means. Yeah. So we all right. Um, you remember earlier when I showed you that picture of the cats?
0: Yeah, I see. I, I almost don't even see images. I just see lines.
1: Okay. So I should send this picture of cats being like, dude, isn't this just messed up? But I just want you to picture like a capital T, and hanging from one of the top part of the T. Is a harness and there's a cat in it and hanging from the other top part of the T. There's like a cat that's being carried in a box um, and it was this admittedly kind of messed up experiment done on kittens, done on kittens, um, where they put them in a bag and drowned them later. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, it's sad. I'm sure it wasn't much better than that. But one could move while also perceiving the world. The other, by way because of the creation of this. Complex contraption. Uh, you can Google it by looking up kitten carousel, and you'll see what we're talking about. It would it would move exactly like the mobile kitten, except it was carried
0: because it was on the opposite side. They're they're connected, and as they would move, it would move the right. other one. So it would
1: have all of the same visual things. And so the traditional model of like how we see would be like would be like these you cats are going to develop in the exact same way. They're going to have the exact same picture of the world. It's all about reflected light. It turned out to be no that the cat that could move developed normally. Uh, the cat that could not move while seeing uh, totally failed to develop sort of the basic uh, spatial visual abilities of a seeing creature. Like it, it couldn't identify when it was getting near a cliff. It couldn't identify when something was getting near its face. Its pupils wouldn't respond to light. All of these things that we wouldn't conventionally think are joint to movement turned out to be. And like uh, the fascinating thing is here's the technical jargon. It appears to be that we get information and even see uh, by a process that's called cross-model binding, which is basically I move towards you while looking at you, and I notice that I, that relative to the wall behind you, you stay in one place. And so through the experience of motion and your stasis relative to that motion, I identify that you're an object and my brain begins to build that you're there and in fact, there's a world there, and that when I also touch things and smell things and these senses intersect that actually the visual picture begins to emerge.
0: Yeah,
1: I guess that makes sense. It's, it's like very intuitive once you say it, but the crazy thing is that it like runs in the face of where we think this, the mind is reasoning in the West after Kant did what Kant did and John Locke did what John Locke did. Because what it means is that uh, as people, like... We are made to be material. God did not make minds and put them in a vacuum and make bodies that could interact with those minds and set those bodies in the world. It was actually like, nope, uh, your body, soul, and spirit, these things are mysteriously connected to one another. If you want to know how mysteriously, you can read a little bit of Watchman Nee's thoughts on the matter. But essentially, it's like, no, 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 no. You think by being embodied. uh, You see um, that actually your perception of the world is built through your engagement with the world. And this is, what, this is what's Remember so crazy. Somebody else's brain's hurting? My brains, both of them. It's about to really hurt because the Enlightenment thought that perception and thinking about perception were different activities where you received images or perceived things and then thought about them. Turns out that there's like no difference between perceiving the world and knowing the world, these things happen at the exact same time, and the part of the reason that that sounds crazy and is hard to get your mind around is because that idea actually like runs against the you know three hundred year old foundation of politics and philosophy and even to a certain extent science in our Western sphere. All right,
0: all this is important. Why? because when you're staring at a screen, you're not actually there. You're the cat in the box.
1: You're the cat in the box. I wanna make two more points before we make that one, which is simply these two things that you need to know. Because we see the way that we see, and we sense the world the way that we sense the world. I talked about moving towards you and identifying that you stay still while the background moves and I identify you as a still object. We are just built to look for connection between things like, and I don't mean like the connection between ideas, that's a fact as well, but we're built to look for like, oh my gosh, if I touch this, that happens. And we're also built for mastery. And so these two things together are what make it like so incredible to learn an instrument because it's like when I interact with this instrument in this way, it produces this sound, and as I get better and better and more effortless at that, like the two are unified in this incredible way that is totally rewarding to human beings that we're charged to rule and subdue. Mm. Now we're going to talk about the nature of the problem. If you look at technology, it's really easy to see Kant winning. One of the reasons that we're cool with something like messaging each other through a screen is that we think that there is like a mind that's just floating behind the screen that is sending the message, the medium doesn't matter, that is communicating with another mind. But the fact is, this has absolutely nothing to do with the way that people actually have a conversation and have a relationship. Because we are embodied, we actually have conversations by being embodied alongside people and we learn people by looking at the intersection of all of the sense data available to us. Like, people have this issue all the time where they're like, in that text message, you just didn't get my tone of voice. But it's like, yeah. And whether or not you paused, and your facial expression, and your smell, and beyond body language, like how you moved, like, there was actually the thing that was a conversation was not happening. What was happening was this holy other thing of like, zapping messages through a whatever, whatever.
0: I think I've experienced a lot of conversations recently where people have named the the longing of connection and relationship and how it seemed like social media was fulfilling that need and keeping in touch with friends and family that are not close by. And I think as we've been immersed in that for over a decade now. We're beginning to learn that that, that leaves you with a lot to be desired.
1: Oh, it leaves you with so much to be desired because what people learn is that it's not the same thing. What they learn is that it is qualitatively different to message a person than to have a conversation. And one of the reasons that people who engage with social media are observed to be less capable of human relationship over time and less capable of things like love and compassion, is because they actually build up this ability to do this one kind of activity that has nothing to do with the other that is being in the world and living with people. And what makes it so maddening for me is like the flip side. It's the beginning of the conversation. It's like, okay, so we can tell that it is not the same to send a person a Facebook message or do whatever as it is to relate with people. Like, it actually has nothing, no thing that is like it. However, This is the crazy thing. You know, we talked about why is this allowed? It's because of this idea of freedom and this idea of responsibility of like, well, if you didn't like it, then you should just not do it. What really kills me is that things like social media and things like Netflix and things like hot media technologies, television, daytime television, the news, uh, they're actually all built to be extremely addictive to people. And there's two main reasons for that. One is that as people, there's this fascinating thing that, you know, you like hear a loud sound and you like start running away. And neuroscientists realized that the person was running before the sound ever reached the brain. And it was like, wait, what? And what they realized was, oh my goodness, the whole body is engaged in thinking, not just the nerve mm-hmm. center, and that the peripheral nervous system actually controls the majority of your gross motor functions. Um, and you know, this is why, like, you can actually duck something you can't quite see um, because it doesn't have to register as being seen. And now I'm going to choose to duck it. Like, all of reflex is built on this reality that your body is quite intelligent. But there's like this fact about bodies. Not mine, is that we will, as a matter of course, respond to the new thing. It's called the something novel something. But the point is that. Is it literally something novel something? No, it's not. But if we were like sitting here and a genie appeared, we'd both look at the genie. Right. Or if you're set, like if you're in a room and all of a sudden, like. It feels ca- like a very survival type in, like, instinct. It's right. It's a very like. Oh, 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 what makes you the new thing isn't dangerous? <laughs> um, but the crazy thing is. Oh you see where you're going right you now. You see where I'm going with this? And I, I get really kind of agitated at something like Instagram that's like, we're just a photo sharing thing. I'm like, I don't know. You're you're built to be gratifying to people, which doesn't make you just a photo sharing thing. Like, you're built to gratify attention. If you're a photo... Fo- photo sharing things existed, they were called photo albums. Or they were called, like, a Dropbox folder where everybody stores... Like, that's a photo sharing thing. What you are doing, Instagram is you are pushing this button that is almost irresistible to people, which is serving them a new image, a new image, a new image, a new image, which, Mm. like, the body uh, categorically turns to. is like, oh, like, and every time, there's sort of this, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's like, you are not about photo sharing. You are about crafting an experience that engages human attention. The other one, and this one is even worse, is that... If you have a little kid, you'll notice this thing happens where, like, before I had a daughter, I would go over and I would see kids' toys at friends' houses, and I would be like, never in the world am I going to let that stuff in. But then people give them to you, and then your kids start really liking them, and you're like, oh, no, where are my values? (laughs) But in my case, it's a ladybug. It's a little plastic ladybug. But if you push this thing, like, the light comes on, and, like, my daughter loves it. And it's actually because of that hardwiring to like, that we're built to rule and subdue, that we're built to grow into mastery, which means that we're built to like, see the effect of physical causes. So like, you know, people who are great chefs, like love turning the knife a certain way, and you get like a particular cut of vegetable. But toddlers are constantly frustrated by their ability to do that. They're like, I tried to walk and I fell. Like, but here, if I push this button, the light comes on. And this is like an incredibly rewarding experience for us as people. It's like part of our entelechy, part of what we were built to do. The crazy thing is that this has been identified as sort of like what gets people going with video gambling. Matthew Crawford in his book has this extended analysis that's very disturbing where he's like, yeah. All of the research indicates that people who love video poker, like the gambling machines where you just push the button, they don't care about when you're losing. What it is all about is the integration of like pushing a button and producing an effect. This is also Kant. This is like the mind pushing something and then an effect happens in the world. So these things are happening simultaneously. But what people get hooked on is like, man, in my life like Wait, is that Kant or is that That was Newton. Both. Okay. Neither. It's not Newton. It's Kant. <laughs> Both. Neither. <laughs> Both neither. Just Kant. But it's like, man, I called my girlfriend and she didn't call me back and I tried to get a job and I couldn't do it. And like the world, I just cannot produce effects in the way that I want to. But here I can just click, ding, click, ding, click, ding. Like it works every time, which is actually like, it's one of the ways that they like check for autism and in infants is like whether they get like totally hooked on like a causal loop where, where they like need an effect right away because they're finding engaging with a world that is resisting them and hard to master too much. Mm. And so people who do video poker, it becomes totally compulsive because they're immersed in this environment where it's just like mind, action, result, mind, action, result. But the, in, the insane thing is the degree to which it mirrors... Social media behavior. Social media, the news. Daytime television. Right. Like, Mm. Crawford gives an example of daytime television where he's like, sometimes, like, when the day's been too much, you're like, just let the next show play. Like, I don't have to make a decision. It's just going to happen. Like, I made the decision to turn on the TV, and I can just screw it. When you realize that and you realize, like, wow, people spend how many hours, like, on their phone? And these, at least these two things, other things too, but for now, these two things are happening simultaneously. They're being served novel content, which like pushes on a major body trigger. It's like the knee tap in old, you know, they do an old doctor yeah, cartoon. Yeah, the reflex thing. And uh, it's just so much less frustrating than the world because it gives you the illusion of the gratifying experience of having mastery, of being able to produce an effect in the world by doing something like... Like, do, like, scroll another thing, do this, uh, like, that instant thing is deeply, deeply, deeply addictive to
0: human beings. Obviously, there's a factor here that's the video game thing. You know, dad likes to talk a lot about how it's adventure, battle, a role to play. I wonder actually how much of it's just you now have these abilities and you push a few buttons and you get to do those
1: things. Because, like, they are mimicking the reality of what we were made for. We're made for, like, to use a tool to swing a sword until it becomes an extension of us. Like, in uh, studies of hockey players, they become as sensitive with the toe of their hockey stick as the tip of their finger. Like, they can sense the world that efficiently through this instrument. Mm. And the way that, like, great swordsmen, it's just an extension of the arm— uh, of their body. And we were made for that, but it's so hard and so frustrating that when we're provided with like the alternative of, of like, get that really quick reflex with your, you know, thumb trigger finger. And it does create an experience that is doing that for you, but understanding how dangerous it is and sh- meaning how powerful the urges are, allows you to make decisions, uh, in a different way, which is where we are right now. Uh, what do you do? What do you do in view of the fact that like we think in an embodied way and that a technologically mediated world like preys on that big time? Well, it's interesting. Returning to our our pal Crawford, um, sponsor of this podcast, unofficial sponsor, uh, he talks about the, the interesting thing that like master crafts people do, which is called jigging, which is where you like, make some restriction in the world that offloads the work of thinking. And so like a carpenter will like, you know, make a little frame that makes all the boards cut the same way. Boom, jigging. When I'm making charcuterie in the kitchen, I'll like, measure out all the things for my brine and like set them right next to the brine pot. And then like, I don't need to think anymore about when they need to be added and what they are. They're like right there. So like these environmental things, because actually, like we know that people do great when they think in terms of environments. And that's one of the further, you know, scary things about manufactured environments is like, well, actually, like they're really effectively shaping what you do because we're meant to engage our world and then through that engagement sort of um, build something that helps us master what it is that we're meant to do. But it's just a fact that if you're like, you know what? I want to be more responsible with my Facebook account. Like I've got a lot of people that I love staying in contact with. All the positive things that are capable through a broadcast message medium, it's like, great. Well, You might just be, like, an anomalous person who all the time is, like, who actually is Kant's mind. You're like, I decided to do this, and then I did that, and I felt this, so I did that. Or you might be, like, a regular person, in which case you actually need environmental cues that are going to kind of sort of help structure your engagement with profoundly addictive things. And, like, this is one reason, like, we've talked about before how, like, the idea of, like, a cell phone box at home. And the reason it's a box is like, because it will amplify the sound of your phone ringing. So like you can go make a choice whether or not to get it if you want it to be on at all, or you can have set times that you go look at it, but just not allowing it to compete for your attention, sort of enchanting yourself going like, well, I'll decide whether or not to look and be like, you'll kind of do that, but the odds are it's just really, really hard. Like if the light comes on, you might look at it before you know you're looking at it because of Peripheral nervous system and gross motor functions. So like jigging, what can you do in your engagement with technology to actually like limit you in the ways that you want to be limited is uh, major takeaway one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Major takeaway two is if it turns out, as it turns out, that we think in an embodied way, that we get mastery in an embodied way through uh, being in a material world and trying things. This is like another huge argument uh, for having some manual or some real-world skills that you are working on. Like, And this can just be mountain biking. Or This This, this is why we love training so much. This is why we love training so
0: because much. Because despite what we learn, we spend all of our day in the world of podcast, film, social media, magazine, thoughts. I don't actually have a social media account anymore, but... I know how many times people around the outpost get so frustrated with the stimulation that going outside and
1: playing spike ball is a
0: massive relief.
1: It was so funny. I had a buddy come through to take a tour the other day and he was like, I'm sure this is exactly what people think of when they think of Tart, linoleum floors. And I'm like, yeah, it I mean, it is a workplace and it's it's me at a computer, like doing these things. But, you know, we'll talk about running and how many good ideas come out of it. Where we're like, it's just so peaceful. I like feel my mind draining and it's like yeah, it's really really good for your mind. Um so engaging the real like and especially trying to learn a manual skill. Like maybe you've tried to learn the guitar before. It's worth trying again. Like it will do things for you to have to engage that or maybe you have wanted to like I don't know, just learn how to fix a lawnmower like there's a reason that when something easy happens to a car, like I didn't know how to do this before, even though it's simple, but I learned to switch you know, the brakes on my CRV this year. And it was like the most incredible experience simply because I came away feeling like some part of me had been not just nourished, but engaged. That's just very factually true. Hmm. Um, and then when you sort of hold these things together of like, we improve by being embodied. We grow as men by engaging a material world in a manual way, and, and it and it seems to help us like sort of across disciplines. If you have that, and then have the need of like actually a lot of decision making needs to be offloaded onto your environment, you have these two starting places for going like, wow. We're functionally, like, sort of surrounded by something that is as volatile as cocaine. I can refer you to some studies on that. But being inundated with technology is uh, a very intense thing to learn to navigate and to mature into the ability to navigate. And it takes sort of the radical steps of, here are some examples. I am finally going to build a bike. And it is just for the development of my soul. And I don't care if the parts are crappy or I'm going to buy a hundred dollar Craigslist bike and I'm going to take it entirely apart, just clean and grease every part and put it back together. This will be an incredible practice for you if you're like, yeah, I do that 45 minutes a day, the way that someone would practice a musical instrument. And then when it comes to simply like technology accessing you, it's like, okay, well, where can you aggressively where am I aggressively creating places that technology cannot access me? And here's the one that's been current for M&I is I'll get home from work. We'll both leave our phones somewhere and we will both go on a walk. Fortunately, we live near, you know, a place where we can walk into like trees and an outdoor place really quickly. But that hasn't always been the case. It used to just be a neighborhood round. But just all of a sudden you're like, touching trees, taking a lap, and you are aggressively protecting a space where you are not accessible so that you don't have to, like, do the wrestling of trying to choose whether or not you're going to engage these things at a particular time.
0: We're going to change the the Anson's motto to a Thomas Merton quote, society is a shipwreck from which every man must swim for his life.
1: Swim, my friends. <laughs> swim. <laughs>